And welcome back to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. This week on our panel, we have Will Button. What's going on, everybody? I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest. That is Jonathan Hall. Jonathan, do you want to introduce yourself? Let everybody know why you're awesome. And after talking to you before the call, a little bit crazy. Yes, I am crazy. That's There's no doubt about that. Hi, thank you for having me on here. I'm pleased to be here. My name is Jonathan Hall. I call myself the tiny DevOps guy because I work with small teams, often with five developers or, or fewer or five engineers or fewer and help them to do DevOps when usually they're afraid of it, maybe. And I do really crazy things to help them do that. And I think we're oh, going to talk I, about one of them today. Yeah, I thought you were going to like make a short joke or something. but uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, no. My wife won't let me do that. <laughs> because she's short. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> See, my first thought was when you said the tiny DevOps guy, I think about any time you end up in a biker bar, the guy named Tiny is like seven foot two and 400 pounds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep, absolutely. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. So yeah, we were we were getting uh, going and you basically said something about, I don't even know if I can utter these words, so I'm, I'm going to try and force them out. And if I get up and walk out and slam my door, my kids are all going to be like, Dad's mad, what's wrong? But <laughs> you said continuous deployment without tests. Yeah. Now my brain's broken. Yeah, I love that. I'm super insecure now. I talk to a lot of teams who are insecure about continuous deployment, and continuous delivery. And this is the way I approach it with them. I say, look at look at the things you're doing right now before you release to production. You probably have somebody doing some manual testing. They are clicking a button on the interface or making sure the login works, whatever they're doing. Is it possible to do that before your developer hits the merge button so that you can do continuous deployment before you've implemented your automated tests? There's the 10-second version of what I'm talking about. See, now I'm embarrassed. I work for a really, really big company. And that's more or less what we do. Awesome. <laughs> but to make it a little more concrete, and you know, maybe it, it's crazy, but, but here's here's how I look at it. Everybody, not everybody, many, many people I talk to say, we can't possibly do continuous deployment. We only have 15% code coverage or something like that. But they're doing something to ensure that their code is, is sufficiently tested or ready mm -hmm. to be deployed. Why don't we just do that? Why don't we set up a staging environment? Why don't we do something to allow that to happen before you hit the merge button? And so I like to, almost as a thought experiment, take this to the far ridiculous, crazy extreme that I mentioned before the show. No automated tests. What would your pipeline look like if you were doing continuous de deployment 
and you had zero automated tests whatsoever. And so that's kind of what I, the, the mental foundation I start from. And then I, once that's in place, then you can add all the automation you want in the middle between writing code and deploying. But I like to start there. And I've had really good success with that so far with the teams I've worked with. Yeah. What could we say about that? Is this the part where we install Vim on the server? Yes. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> I know. You know, well, I, I need my own folder and then I'll just rsync it over. <laughs> I've, I've done know, that. The, the, boss yeah. needs, the boss needs access too. So we'll install Tmux and then you can uh, program on it. I think oh, at that absolutely. point, you don't need Git anymore, right? Everybody just logs into the same server and does their hacking there. I've done that. Yeah, yeah so technically, S- we've, sadly, actually, we've improved the security footprint by doing so because now we don't have our code hosted in a third-party service like Git. That's right. So it's more I secure. I feel better now. This is like a win, win, win. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody somewhere is yelling at their phone, you guys are idiots! <laughs> This may have an impact on the number of subscribers to the show. (laughs) (laughs) You did say I was crazy, right? You can blame this all on me. Yeah. Now, the the person who threw their phone out the window of your car before we get out of Bluetooth range. Yeah, we're joking. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. But yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting, right? Because... Yeah. Now I know that all the rest of you write crap code, but I don't. So I could do this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I like the idea of taking the approach of, yeah, you know, this is an empowering practice. This is something that, yeah, generally most of the code that I write works fine the first time. You know, there are th- ways that I could optimize it. Sure. There are ways that I could write it better. There are ways that I could make it more maintainable. And sometimes I put bugs in my code. I didn't just admit that. But I didn't hear anything. Right. But at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, most of the time, if I do some kind of continuous deployment, yeah, it'd be fine. And if push comes to shove, I can roll it back without too many headaches. Right. So really, the downside is not as bad as I kind of envisioned the, "Ah!" you know, (laughs) exactly. That's the the reaction everybody has when you think I'm suddenly going to start deploying to a server automatically and my customer is going to see my code. They start, you you have that the bottom of your stomach falls out the first time you think yeah. about that, right? I, I remember when I heard about 10 deploys a day. When, when was that? 15 years ago, 10 years ago. I was like, that's insane. Nobody can do that. There's no way it would work for me. Now That's kind of table stakes now. I mean, everybody want, everybody realizes yeah. we can get there. It's now just a question of when can we get there, not should we get there. And so my whole idea here is that we can get there sooner than maybe we think because we don't need to invest months or years in automation first. And in mm-hmm. fact, I think that there's a, it's very empowering to have, even if it's manual CI, so to speak, or manual test pipelines mm-hmm. in place, that really, if you have that in place and you're doing continuous deployment, even if a, of a manual variety, it's really empowering because it, it starts to point out where you should optimize and where you should implement automation first. Yep. That's a problem I see a lot in DevOps is people automating things because they can, not because there's any reason to. And this helps to maybe avoid that. I've worked on teams that have spent months automating or improving or, or streamlining, say, a CI pipeline uh, to test some workflow that, that happens once every six months. You know, it's, it's, it's something that's just ridiculous and doesn't need to be automated or shouldn't be the first thing automated in any case. If yeah, can, but it happens automatically when it happens. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny, too, because you're talking about this. And so I've, I've got this new app that I've been working on for the last few months. And, you know, it's out there on the web. It's just not quite ready for prime time. So I've been promoting it at all. But it's deployed 
when I push to get, right? I push to get and it, it deploys the DigitalOcean app platform. Wait, Heroku does this. A bunch of others do it too, right? You know, you push to get and it deploys. So this isn't a new idea. It's just that we have this idea of production being this, you know, this sacred space. And the reality is, is the code's not useful until people can use it. And you're not going to get the kind of feedback you want until people can use it. So, And that's maybe the most important is your code uh, in the lean concept. Mm-hmm. Undeployed code is is a, essentially a cost. It's a liability, right? It, mm-hmm. It's it's inventory that hasn't that's not being used. And so the sooner we can get that code in front of customers and then get their feedback, the, the sooner we can iterate, the sooner we can get value out of it and so on and so forth. Yeah, we're kind of going through that right now, actually. There's a feature that our business folks wanted. And to be perfectly honest, it was a feature that I kind of pushed them and said, you're doing this this other way. And I'm not going to be responsible for doing it the other way, right? And so um, they're like, well, what do you want? And I, I basically said, well, I want you to upload the file and be responsible for initiating the process. And they're like, well, what would it take, right? And so we sat down and actually cranked out an interface for them. And what's interesting is, yeah, we're getting it up there and deploying it. And I just made a really quick and dirty thing. But yeah, until they actually see it. So I started getting feedback from the other developers. But after talking to the project manager, that was the conclusion that we actually came to was, we need to put this up there, let them initiate the process a handful of times, get the email report that is generated by it, right? And then have them tell us, okay, we need a little more information here, right? We want the process to look a little more like this, right? And and start getting that feedback. Because what I found as a freelancer, what I found as a developer is that people really have no idea what they want until they actually see something in front of their face. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think that's a great point. Yeah, like the, the version... Like the goal of version one is always to identify the difference between what the customer asked for and what they meant to ask for. And it kind of sounds like this approach is is addressing that. There's like two, two things that stand out in my mind here. One is it's helping them understand what they really need to be automating because they're having to do this process. Mm-hmm. And then there's also like the, this mental shift that helps reinforce like the code that you write is going to production. And it's going soon. That, in my view, that's one of the most powerful and most important reasons to do continuous d- delivery or deployment is because it puts the onus on the developer. Whether there's a manual QA team or not, if I know that there's going to be an hour or a month <laughs> or a week between hitting merge and it going to production, I'm a little bit less careful. Yeah. But if I know it's going to be there in 10 minutes, I'm like, let me just double check that one more time and make sure I got that right. <laughs> right. Hey, Jonathan. Don't F this up, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Mental shift that happens when merge means deploy is so powerful. Mm -hmm. As a developer, I mean, I've I've been a developer and a DevOps guy for for my entire career. But as when I put my developer hat on, that mental shift is is so important. And and that's one thing that I, I, I coach my teams on too, is continuous delivery, if for nothing else, it makes your developers more responsible. Yeah. I mean, there's still part of this that I'm I'm kind of thinking it through. And yeah, part of me is thinking, okay, I can write better code. I can make sure that the process is solid. But there's still part of me that still... I have body parts clenching, right? Going, <laughs> <laughs> I, I can. I can still mess this up, right? 
oops, Chuck dropped the database so, again, dummy. So, so what, what else can I do, right, to mitigate some of the risk here? So, so what, what do you do to feel comfortable between the time you merge your code and the time it's deployed? What, what steps happen between those I two pray. events that make you <laughs> <lots of> confident? <laughs> lots of prayer. If that's the only thing, just learn how to pray sooner. Do some shift left prayer time. Mm-hmm. And multiple religions. I mean, don't, don't rule anything out. <laughs> so one of the key technology pieces I put in place on teams where I'm coaching them to do this is I make sure they have a solid working staging environment, at least one, mm-hmm. ideally one per developer. That's even better. But usually I'm working with small teams and, and they're happy to have one. Right. And I just tell the developers, push your changes to staging and test it. Log in. If it's a mobile app, log into the mobile app. Make sure the back end's working right. Do everything you would do after you merge. Just do it before you merge. Once you're confident. And, and this is also great because you can show your product owners or your stakeholders, hey, this is what I'm working on. This is what it looks like. <coughs> you can even have your manual QA team test against this environment if you have that. Just do all of that stuff before you hit the merge. So that's really all it is. It's, it's quite a simple thing to explain. It's much harder to do of course, that's how DevOps works, right? right. <laughs> it's easy to explain. It's hard to do. Mm-hmm. But so that's do the just... Yeah. Yeah. Do you leverage um, like GitHub pull request environments to do that? I do. I, I like to do that. And so I, I do put a pipeline in place that if it doesn't pass, you can't merge generally and usually requires one approval or two approvals, depending on what the team wants to do. Mm-hmm. And, and often I'll just put a manual checklist. You can do this in a GitHub template, for example, issue template. It says, make sure QA is signed off. Make sure the product owner signed off. Whatever manual checks you want, just put those in a checkbox list and just check those off as you're done. So it's it's kind of the idea that humans are Turing complete machines too. <laughs> you're we, giving we, we, some humans a lot of credit. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, if, it, if it could be automated in principle, then a human could also do it. And so yeah. start with a simple version with a checklist. We we don't execute C++. We execute checklists. That's fine. Just write a checklist. Have a human. Maybe it's a developer. Maybe it's a product owner. Have them go through this checklist. Make sure that we're confident before we hit the merge button. Instead of having half of your checklist after the merge button, but, but before deploy. But most of the time, most teams I work with, this isn't always 100% true, but most teams I work with, there's really nothing else that happens between merge and deploy except they wait a while. And if that's what you're doing, you're not mitigating any risk. You're just making yourself feel better while increasing risk because you're batching multiple things together. You're doing six changes at once instead of one. You're not sol- You're not giving anybody an easier night's sleep. Well, maybe you are because you don't realize <laughs> the, the risk you're taking on. <laughs> you're not actually solving your problems, though, is, is my point. Maybe you feel like it, but you're not. Now, if you're doing some additional checks in there, a manual QA process, for example, maybe you are reducing risk, but I still suggest move that before the merge, if possible, and then you get the the other benefits of continuous deployment we talked about earlier, such as giving the developers that uh, that extra responsibility and that, that feeling of yeah responsibility. Yeah. Now, what you're talking about here is kind of interesting because what we actually do. So we have a preview stage, and then a staging, and then a production, and so everything gets pushed pushed into preview, and then gets tested there, and then before it goes to production, it goes to staging and QA hits it again before it goes to to production. Mm -hmm. And what's funny, well, not funny, it's not funny, it sucks, is that there's stuff that's been sitting in preview forever now that hasn't been pushed to production that 
nobody remembers anything about, right? And eventually we want to push it to production, but... But somebody yeah, has to go it, dig through the logs and figure out what was uh-huh. that about. And maybe yeah. you don't have time for that because you're writing new features. Right. And then the other thing is, is that a couple of them are these gigantic features, right? Mm-hmm. That that need to go in. And we've been waiting because we're in the middle of a survey, actually, is what it is. We've been gathering information for the survey. We don't want to destabilize things for the survey. Mm-hmm. The survey's been running since May. And, it, you know, it just ended and now we're tabulating all the results. So another four weeks before we're done and then we can push all this stuff out. And yeah, and so then it's this giant push all at once. And anyway, so what you're talking about with this continuous deployment and avoiding all this mess makes a ton of sense to me because I'm feeling the pain on the other end. And if we'd been able to kind of drip it out a piece at a time and say, okay, now we're doing this, now we're doing that. And granted, I mean, we have users using the system, so it has to be complete enough to not hamper them. Mm-hmm. Of course. But so there's some balance there. But yeah, I, I feel you because when we finally get around to actually pushing this stuff out, it's gonna be it's gonna be a bit of work because we're gonna have to make everything play nice with whatever's sitting on production. That anyway, it, it it gets ugly. You know what I can guarantee would solve all of those problems for you? If you well, use I'm Will's suggestion of putting Vim on the server, you will <laughs> never deal with the problems again. <laughs> I think one of the myriad training that I've been to for this giant company that I work for about uh, security, <laughs> I, I think there's a policy against that. They might frown on that one. Okay, well. Yeah, maybe just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, what, one of the biggest problems I see uh, with Teams... Uh, Honestly, the biggest problem I see with continuous deployment, it's not about the technology. The, the tools are, are pretty mature at this stage. They're always improving, mm-hmm. but they're fairly mature. It's, it's not about what tool do we use. It's it's about the, the psychological problems. It's the fear of, but what if it's not tested yet? So do your testing. Do your testing. I'm not saying don't test. Do your testing, but do it earlier in the cycle before you hit, before your developers hit that merge so you don't have all this code like you're talking about in this limbo state of done, but not really done yet. Right. Who are the biggest groups that are resistant to this? Is it the developers or like the product owners? It's usually product owners and in, in upper management who are, they're the ones who maybe come from the more traditional change management school of thought. You know, we need a committee to go through everything. We need to make sure that it's audited by the security guy. But last year I was working for a fintech startup. Of course, they have audits in place and security concerns, really serious ones. You know, that's important there. They were dealing with with individuals' money. But we were able to do this there too. I mean, and we did it with the manual checklist as I was describing. And we had had our definition of ready and our definition of done that uh, we would just, the developers would ask questions. They were using, roughly using Scrum. So during sprint planning, they would ask the questions about each ticket to decide, does this require extra security audits or, or precautions from our security officer? And when it did, then he would get flagged and he would check mark those boxes as he did his work. But every time, whenever developer hit merge, it went to production. So we just, we just merged, you know, we just shifted all that to not, not so far left that we're doing TDD. I mean, that's fine if you want to, but just, just left of the merge button. That's all. Mm-hmm. Do you use like feature flags or things like that to kind of be I, I, able to manage some of that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I like feature flags. I always like to tell my teams, don't be afraid of a feature flag. The easiest feature flag you can ever implement is an if-false. 
If you don't have a mm-hmm. framework in place, just put an if false in your code. It's still there. You can still run your unit test against it and so on and so forth. And then you can delete that if when you're ready. Uh, so don't be afraid to do that. Of course, if you're doing small small changes, then you're, you're going to need more feature flags because you're not going to you're not going to have these huge multi-month features sitting there waiting to be merged. So you have to disable those. So definitely use feature flags when it makes sense. Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software. And what makes it so unique is that it not only tells you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it, right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit Raygun.com to resolve issues faster and deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's Raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial with plans starting from as little as $4 per month. I guess the other thing that I'm, I'm thinking through is I've seen different organizations work at different cadences, right? So some of them are going to be... They're going to be merging like two, three times a day, right? And so it's it's hey, I've got I've got kind of big chunks of code going out uh, a few times a day, and then others they're going to be pushing like 20, 30, 40 times a day, right? And so if something goes out and something does cause a problem, because that's what everybody's dreaming up, right? Nobody's dreaming up, oh, everything works perfectly all the time, right? <laughs> they're dreaming of when something just crashes everything right and so the whole system goes down how do you start unwinding that when there are 30 or 40 commits that have gone in that day or 20 or 30 merges that have gone in that day mm-hmm. and who knows well this comes up all the time this came up with the, at the fintech i was talking about earlier my answer is yes there's a problem to be solved there but the problem is much worse if you don't do continuous deployment because then you've batched. I mean, rather than having 20 releases that day, you have 20 changes in a single release or, or worse. Maybe you have oh, a week's fair. worth of changes in a single release. And then it's even, then it's much, much well, harder. What do I cherry pick out? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yes, it is a problem. And it's a problem that must be solved. But avoiding continuous delivery or deployment because you're afraid of that is actually shooting yourself in the foot because you're making mm-hmm. your problem worse, not better. So the, the right. smaller the changes you can deploy, the less risky each individual deployment is, that's fairly intuitive, I think. Uh, what's mm-hmm. less intuitive is that the aggregate risk is also lower because you only have to roll back, hopefully, one change. Maybe you didn't catch it and, and three other changes have come through. Maybe you have to roll back four changes or something like that. But that's still much easier than trying to look through the last week's change log to figure out what broke. Yeah, that makes sense. Especially since I think, at least in my experience, because I've, I've done rollbacks before, and the the most common rollback is rollback one, right? So rollback to the last one. The next most common one is rollback to this one. And if you're going to roll back to this one, it doesn't matter which one it is, if it's three or 10 or 80. Yeah. And so if, if you're doing that, then yeah, then you should be able to look at it and say, it started to wobble here. We're going to roll back to here. Or mm-hmm. we know it was stable here. We're going to roll back to here. Yeah. Wait, another, um, pra- another practice I like to, to advocate, uh, it doesn't solve this problem 100% of the time, but it can help, is just if you keep your commits and your pull requests as small and tidy as possible, it mm-hmm. does make it easier to revert a single one, even if it's a few weeks or days in the past. You know, if you, 
the most common example that's the anti-pattern is I'm fixing a feature. Oh, and I found a bug. I'm going to fix it at the same time. Now, when you roll back that feature because it broke, then you've introduced the bug again. You roll back the bug fix. Yep. I don't see why that would be a problem. <laughs> 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 yeah, I love those. Or the other one I've seen is where they bundle a fix and an upgrade or they bundle a fix and a refactor or things like that. One other one that I've run across is that a lot of applications, you'll add a feature, but for the most part, you know, it kind of adds its own data structures. It adds its own tables to the database. It adds its own, uh, you know, so it generally doesn't really, uh, you know, this isn't always true and it's, uh, it's not true often enough to be significant, but uh, generally features anyway. My question is, is when I deploy, I tend to worry more about deploying behavior than deploying things that affect data. Mm -hmm. And if I roll back, I can't always roll back the effects on the data in the database and things like that, right? And right. so one thing that I'm concerned with is if I've got database migrations or if I've had it corrupting data that's going into the database or you know, I've had it been running faulty updates or things like that as it's been running, do you have a system for, for managing that kind of a thing, right? Because those those are the real damaging ones as opposed to say, hey, the behavior wasn't right, so we're just going to have it do something different. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's different answers to that. I mean, many uh, database migration tool sets out there have a rollback feature. I'm, I'm a little bit dubious about those because many database migrations, you literally cannot roll back. I mean, if you drop a column, mm -hmm. that column's gone. You, you can't just undrop. Yep. That, that's not possible. So I've also dealt with, I, I haven't worked on teams that do this, but I've certainly read about teams that just have a strict policy of never drop database tables or columns, or at least don't for X number of months so that a rollback is possible. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe, maybe after six months, we decided, okay, now it's fine. But the general approach I like to take, uh, although it depends a lot on the team and the workflow they're already used to, is a roll forward approach of don't actually roll back the code. I mean, if you, sometimes if you have to, maybe you do a revert and get, but like in the sense of don't roll back to like a previous Docker image or something like that, right. uh, but revert and, and then your, your Git history continues forward. But that doesn't really solve the database problem. So I, I don't have, uh, other than using NoSQL, <laughs> people are going to shoot <laughs> me now. I don't have a solution to that. <laughs> I, I think it depends a lot on... on on your application and what approach you choose to take. I mean, I, I've used different approaches before. Um, I kind of tend to try to just not drop columns or be really careful when I do. Um, yeah, there, there's no perfect solution that I'm aware of. I mean, I generically advocate for regular database backups. Yeah, then at awesome. least you have kind of a starting point to run from from whenever you last backed up. Yeah. But even that's pretty subjective to... You know, and then you how have the question of how, your how data often? is. Yeah, how timely your data has to be, and exactly. what standard you're held to, and yeah, all kinds it, of stuff. So it's it's a good safety net, but it's not a complete solution, right? Just I think, yes, I think exactly. That, That's a good way to put it. Like yeah. Mm -hmm. What were you saying, Will? I was just going to like summarize where we're at at this point. So to implement this, we're going to install Vim and MongoDB on the server. Is that right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Cool. <laughs> Isn't there a NoSQL called Voldemort? I mean, if we're being evil, let's just own it. Uh, so what's the longer term after you get teams switched over to this? They're they're doing it manually. They're 
figuring out their process of what what this actually looks like, you know, creating their templates and their checklists. Longer term, what how how quickly do they start showing measurable improvements or wins from adopting this strategy? So just as a, as a case study, I suppose, uh, this, this startup I talked about earlier that I was working with uh, a year ago, um, I was with them about 12 months. And when I started, they didn't even have a ticket tracker in place. The, only the CTO was able to do deployment. So you know, it was literally a case of, of uh, the developers like, I, I have a feature ready. Could you deploy it? And then waiting 24, 48 hours until the CTO gets around to deploying it. So that was our starting point. By the time I left, uh, it was still a small company. It was early series A, B stage startup. I think we had 20 or 30 engineers. So we'd gone from like four to 20 or 30. And we were doing, I think we had counted 160 deploys in a week. Wow. So you know, they were doing microservices. So this wasn't like 160 deployments of the entire stack but mm-hmm. of all the individual microservices. So I, mean, I know that that's not a business outcome, but it gives you some idea of, of the turnaround we saw. And we were still doing, we, we did have CI in place. We were doing some automated tests. There was a little bit of TDD going on and, and there was some even like end-to-end testing. But for the most part, I think our code coverage was around 30% if you count the entire code base. But we were doing CD and uh, we were doing it, in my view, very successfully. There was some resistance. It was mostly from, like I said earlier, upper management, you know, being afraid. But what if something breaks, but that problem doesn't go away if you don't deploy? I mean, you have to deploy eventually anyway. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Well, it's interesting, too, because you said it wasn't the whole stack, but 160 deployments. The thing that... I'm sure our audience is is kind of on top of this, but you know, at a lot of companies, a deployment, you know, there's all this ceremony around it, and hey, we ordered in pizza, so you guys can stick around, so that. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, Will's laughing, right? Because because he's 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 been there, right? Where it's like, and you know, I hope you brought your pillow because we set up a cot and a sleeping bag for you, and. Hey. It's like when I mean, you smell you know, pizza in the office, it's the kiss of death. <laughs> uh, right? It, it's <laughs> not because they love you. Oh, you you know, that that reminds me, though. Like, uh, I'm not going to be home. <laughs> but that does remind me, though. I, there, were, there were times when I had the product owners telling me, we can't, can you disable deployments on Friday afternoons, for example? And my answer was no. But you can tell your developers not to merge on Friday afternoons if that's what you want. There's no, we don't need magical tools to teach our developers mm-hmm. to be adults. If there's a risk for the business to deploy on a Friday afternoon, just don't deploy on a Friday afternoon. You don't need, you don't necessarily need technology to do that. I mean, we, we could have set up some sort of GitHub action rules or something that would that would permit uh, prohibit that. But if you're afraid of deploying, then just don't merge. There's, it can't get much simpler than that, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah, and I'm still, I mean, I still like go back into horror stories of fi- Friday afternoon deploys, even though it's probably been, I don't know, five, maybe 10 years since the last time I went through one of those scenarios, but like the pain is still there. And, but I think in, the thing about it is in your approach, the developer who's going to merge that code is going to be a lot more closely aligned to the shitstorm that's about to be unleashed in this in this model you know and and when i think that's back right. a lot of our friday afternoon outages were caused back when we had development and it in different silos and someone would do the deploy on friday afternoon and the developers who wrote that code were in 
Maui or the Bahamas or the moon or wherever developers go that they're not accessible anymore. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I mean, if you know, I mean, there's a cultural aspect here too. You need to train your developers that when they hit merge, they're responsible for what happens next. You don't just hit merge and go to lunch and, and expect everything's <laughs> fine. Merge when you have a, have an hour to stick around and, and watch the Slack channel for errors and see if something broke. So yeah, that, that helps. I, I don't necessarily have all of those checks in place on every team all the time before going to this manual or, or this this testless CD. But that, that's also a great place to have a postmortem. You know, next time something breaks, mm-hmm. have a postmortem to discuss it. And maybe you decide at that point, oh, maybe we should have alerts go to a Slack channel. And then, mm-hmm. then the next time it happens, you're more prepared. So just kind of, I mean, I, I would almost say use common sense, except it's not necessarily all that common. But but use good practices <laughs> to improve your processes. Don't stop just because you have this sort of manual CD in place. That's a starting point. It's not. Oh, the, it's not you the almost end goal. sound like it's agile. A starting point. Oh, I know. <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> Are we going to leave here with a manifesto? <laughs> Ooh. I think one of the key things that you were you were saying there is that this is like a buffet. You know, just specifically like all the things that we talk about on this podcast. You don't have to or necessarily want to implement all of them but you look and you you think through which ones apply to your situation and say oh that one would help this one would help oh that one's probably not for us right now and you just pick and choose but continuously moving forward absolutely i mean there, devops is such a big topic that it's easy to get intimidated especially if you're just a, a series a founder and you just want to make money and you want to hire people to do it the right way. You know, you, you want to do it smart, but you don't have the time to go get a PhD in DevOps. So start simple, start small and, and build up from there. Well, I love too that we're talking about process and kind of something that I, I don't want to say low level, but that kind of straddles that land that involves the the stakeholders and the developers and the DevOps folks and, and everybody involved. Because... A lot of times we kind of lose sight of that and we just talk about, oh, hey, you know, how do we get Docker to spit out unicorns, right? And it it's not that, right? I mean, we're we're really there to empower the organization to do what it does. And this is an important part of the conversation is, hey, look, you know, let's let's set this up so that we're empowering the developers, right? Hey, if you've got code that is ready to go. Let's let's get that sucker merged and going, right? If if we've got stuff that we need to get out to our customers, let's get it out to our customers, right? And then we can get that feedback loop going, right? And yeah, exactly. if if we screw up, then this empowers us to get a fix out right away. And to be perfectly honest, as a customer, if I get in and it's screwed up periodically, well, I'm sorry. But just about every app that I've ever used on the internet has that problem once in a while, right? right? Yeah. And if if they get it fixed here within a half hour to an hour, and it's not every time I'm trying to get into the dang thing, then I'm probably fine with them, right? And so if you really look at it from that perspective, then their ability to move fast and give me what I want, well, crap, that's an advantage. And if you can... If you can come at it from that perspective and put DevOps in its rightful place as kind of this nexus to empower all of these different people within the organization to do what they do best and just remove obstacles 
and set up structures for this stuff. Holy cow, can you can you get stuff done? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> DevOps, uh, people like to talk about biz DevOps. And I, I kind of think it's almost silly because without biz, there's no DevOps in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. the, the, the whole reason DevOps exists is to serve a business. I mean, I, I guess you can have DevOps that are an NPO or something, but it's still there to serve some sort of something we call a business, right? So yeah, D- DevOps is there for a purpose. It's not there. It's not in a vacuum. It's not it's not its own entity for its own right, for its own kicks and giggles. It's there to serve a purpose. If we aren't serving that purpose by by generating revenue or satisfying customers, why are we here? Let's go home. Let's go do something else. Yep. Yeah. It's not a trademarked product that you download and install. Yeah. We'd love it to be. It would be so much easier if it were. It? <laughs> <laughs> but but at the same time, I mean, that's that's what people want, right? Exactly. Is because it's it's real work, right? You you actually have to sit down. Because there's no one-size-fits-all DevOps, right? It's the same thing with Agile. And I think that was part of the reason why people got frustrated with Agile to a certain degree was that they wanted a one-size-fits-all, right? And so they did Scrum and then they took all the hard parts out, right? And then it didn't work for them the way they wanted. And so at the end of the day, yeah, you've got to sit down and you've got to figure out what processes and how this is going to go for you. And... Yeah, I, I just I don't know how to tell people how to shortcut that. Yeah, I don't think there is, there is a shortcut. It's like you said, it's hard work. It takes people taking time to think about what they need and and how to do it. You can't just buy it in a box. Yeah, welcome and to live folks conversations. Exactly. Yep. So one thing that I'm wondering about as as we kind of wrap this up is just kind of going back to this core idea of you know just getting in and setting up continuous deployment. We've talked a lot about the the how and the reasons and the the benefits and stuff like that. But if you were going to go in tomorrow, if you're a developer DevOps person, and you had to go in and actually try and convince the stakeholders, be it the other DevOps folks, the other developers, the business folks, whoever, that this was a direction that you wanted to head in. I mean, what would you tell them in two minutes? In two minutes? I don't know if there's a two-minute version uh, that that's going to convince anybody. Uh, the the two-minute version is you can reduce your risk, you can get faster feedback, and you can make your developers more confident and more responsible for what they're doing. And it doesn't actually make, even though it's scary, it doesn't actually make your release process any more dangerous or or more risky. That that alone won't convince anybody. I, mean, I know because I've tried. Um, <laughs> but that is the the elevator pitch version. Awesome. All right. One more question. It sounds like people can hire you to help them. <laughs> they can. Uh, where, how do people get a hold of you? I'm at jhall.io. I have a daily mailing list if you're interested in getting short tips like this. Like the last one I just gave you that won't convince you of anything. jhall.io slash daily. You can also search for the Tiny DevOps Guy. I have my own podcast that I talk directly to you five-person developer type DevOps teams. Very cool. All right. We'll put links to all of that stuff in the show notes. Let's move on and do some picks. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Will, you have some picks for us? Oh, I do. This week's picks coming from the hashtag shameless self-promotion category. I um, I actually recently self-published a guide and published it on Amazon, the DevOps Career Guide. 
because over on my YouTube channel, a lot of the people I deal with there are people who are wondering what DevOps is because they're interested in a career aspect of it. And when you, you know, when you Google what is DevOps, you just get overloaded. So I created this really high level guide that talks about some of the main technologies that I've used in my DevOps career. And it's a really short book because I self-published it. So I wasn't obligated to hit 500 pages, but I think it does a really good job of answering the question of what does a day in the life look like for someone who's interested in a DevOps career? Love it. I'm going to throw out some picks. The first pick I have is, and this is totally random. So if you're, if you're not a regular swimmer and you don't have the problem of your goggles fogging up, you probably don't care. But there's this stuff and I just found it. So I, I'm on a master swim team, which is basically just an adult swim team. And I've been training for triathlon. And uh, what it does is it defogs your goggles, which mine, I don't know why, but they were just getting bad. It's called spit. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you just spray it on and you, you know, you, you wipe it all over your goggles and then you just rinse it off. And boy, I could see through my goggles this morning. It was real nice. So I'm going to pick spit. The other thing I'm going to pick um, it's funny, Will, that you talked about uh, career stuff because I've been getting asked a lot about that stuff too. And to be perfectly honest, I'm kind of working through a bunch of stuff around dev chat and top end devs. So I actually bought the domain topendevs.com and have some plans for that. And one of the things that I'm going to be doing over the next probably forever is every week I'm going to be getting on for an hour out of the week and I'm just going to be answering questions for people on how to be a top-end dev. And that includes DevOps engineer. So if you're trying to figure out how to kind of take your career up to the next level, that could be, how do I solve this problem at work? Right? How do I deal with coworker? How do I deal with boss? How do I get a better job? How do I get a raise? Or it could be, hey, look, you know, what do I learn next? How do I know what the, you know, what the practice, what the skill, what the relationship is that's going to take things to the next level? You know, or it could be, how do I get to speak at the conferences? How do I start a podcast? How do I get into YouTube? How do I, how do I get my blogging to, to work out? How do I write a book? I've either done that stuff or I know people who have done that stuff and had it work for them. And I just want to help people out. I mean, I, I kind of went through an ex- existential thing a couple of years ago that really kind of pushed me along this path to where I really had to figure out what I wanted. And the reality is, is I really love sitting down and just helping people figure their stuff out. And so this is my chance to just sit down and do it with you. And I may offer to do stuff one-on-one with people offline or whatever, but these calls just give you a little bit more context. So um, I'm probably going to do like 10 minutes of just straight up, hey, here's how you do a thing. I've been hesitating to call them webinars because to me, a webinar is, hey, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of information that's just useful enough to get you nowhere. And then I'm going to do a sales pitch at the end. (laughs) And that's not what I'm doing, right? I'm going to show you how to find good conference talks or update your resume or, you know, whatever, right? For 10 minutes. And then I'm going to answer questions until I'm out of time or you're out of questions, right? And when I say answer questions, that's the other thing is I'm going to bring you on and you're going to ask your question. And I reserve the right to ask you questions back to get more clarity, to go as deep as we need to go to actually get to the core of the issue and then answer your question, right? So it's not going to be a, oh, there's a good book or, 
you know, hey, blah, blah, blah. And, and I think some of the answers to some of the questions might be that simple, right? Oh, well, the answers to this is there's a JavaScript library that does that and this is what it's called and here's a link, right? But I think a lot more of it's going to be, hey, you know, it sounds like you're really cut out for this kind of work and you may want to look into this. And it sounds like it would solve these core issues that we've talked about as we've kind of dug deep into these things, right? And so it's going to look a whole lot more like coaching and a whole lot less like quick and dirty, fast answers. But that's the kind of thing that really gets me going because I feel like that's what makes a difference for people. And I really want to get people to kind of that top level of their career. So anyway, I've rambled long enough about this. Um, Right now, it looks like I'm probably going to wind up doing it on Wednesdays about noon. But I've also recognized that um, my wife's work schedule and my kid's school schedule is changing. So if that changes, I will announce it on the shows and let people know when I'm doing it. But if you go to devchat.tv slash level up, you can just see what the schedule looks like for the time being. And you can just get on. It actually says Zoom webinar because that's the feature I'm using to do it. But yeah, you can just get on and it'll send you a reminder and send you the link and all that stuff so that you can get in. But yeah, I really want to help people out, want to have these conversations, see what people are struggling with, see if I can get stuff out there that's going to help people out. I'm starting a top end devs podcast to help people out with this stuff. We're probably going to do more content on the other shows related to this because I think it's important to just get this stuff out there. But yeah, that's really the focus of where I'm headed. So yeah, I took way more than my picks time to put that out there. But yeah, that's where we're at. So devchat.tv slash level up is where you want to go for that stuff. And then yeah, if you want to connect on any of the other channels, you know, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, I'm going to be putting the times and dates and all the other stuff out there for that too on there. So there you go. Are you uh, Jonathan. Publishing? Hold on. Are you going to be publishing the webinars once you've recorded them? Or is it um, on demand? I will be... I So the 10 minutes, I will probably actually put some kind of subscription up for that, right? So people can just pay some like five bucks a month or something to get those after they're live. Like you can come for free. It's all going to be free live. Yeah. yeah. But I want people to be open and honest during those calls. And so if they're not comfortable with me publishing it, then I probably won't. Okay. And so I'll probably ask people when they come on and, and just let them know, hey, look at any... If at any point you say something that you don't want me to publish, I just, I'll just cut that out of the call. Right on. Cool. And then if, they, if they're happy with that, then, I, then I'll publish it with the, the other content. Uh, because I think, I think there's value there. But I'm, I'm really interested in pulling through for the people that show up. And so if they show up and it gets personal and they're not comfortable, I'd rather knock it out of the park for them, if that makes yeah. sense. Yep, absolutely. So, yeah. All right, Jonathan, do you have some picks? Stuff you I want do. to shout have, out about? I, I have two. So the first uh, shouldn't be a, a surprise to anybody who listens to the show, but the book Accelerate. It's the long answer. It's a long answer version of my 30-second answer earlier of why continuous deployment and continuous delivery makes sense. So Accelerate Building and Scaling High-Performing Technology Organizations by Nicole uh, Forsgren, Jess Humble, and Gene Kim. It's a great book. My other mm-hmm. pick is a, not at all related to technology, but I love Hannah Hats. Irish tweed caps, handmade in Donegal, Ireland. Uh, if you want to see what one looks like, go back to my website. I wear them whenever I leave the house. They're just amazing hats, and they're all handmade patchwork hats. They're amazing. Those nice. are cool looking hats. I, I think I have five or six from them. They're they're great. I love them. 
that's my pick. You might have just sold me one of those hats. <laughs> those are cool looking hats. <laughs> <laughs> we don't publish the videos, so uh, just just for the listener, Jonathan and I are sporting the same haircut, and uh, yeah. yeah, which which is none, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I shave I shave off what does grow up there is the way that I explain it to people. So. That's how mine works too. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right, cool. folks. Well, we're going to wrap it up here. Go to jhall.io. Is that what it was? Correct. That's it. And and check check that stuff out. And Tiny DevOps Guy. Is that was that tiny, the other one? The Tiny DevOps Guy. All right. Well, we're going to wrap it up here. Until next time, folks. Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.